It's the Adult in the Room podcast with Victoria Taft. That's me. It's a special edition of the Adult in the Room podcast with Victoria Taft. Today we start out our series, uh, Leaving California, and I tell you about the hardest job I've ever had and loved coming up in my interview with spy thriller author John D. Trudell. First up, though... Of course, our frequent listeners, of which I hope you are one, and I hope you give it five reviews and a wonderful, wonderful review on uh, Apple Podcast. Uh, You know that we occasionally will open up our podcast with the Pledge of Allegiance. So please stand up, remove your hats, pull up your pants, hand over your heart if you're a civilian, and enjoy the pledge. I pledge allegiance to the United States of America, one nation, indivisible, under God, for real. You know the thing. We've got better ones, but this will have to hold you over until next time. For real. So let's get to the events at hand, shall we? This week, our favorite terror groups, Antifa and BLM, held a special gathering to remember the death of George Floyd one year later. It was a solemn occasion. Many tears, no doubt. A time of self-reflection. Maybe even a moment of gratitude. Grief. Grief so great, as you can imagine, that events got the better of them. And there was some potty talk, so you might want to put the Kevlar earmuffs on. This scene from Kansas City. And in Portland, listen to the drum circle at the August bonfire in Portland, downtown, at the federal courthouse. Nearby, while the mortars were being thrown at the police officers, grief-stricken, grief-stricken, Antifa fascists bashed in the windows of department stores in downtown Portland. they are in their grief-stricken way blocking the Brooklyn Bridge and the cops finally decided to break it up. What the fuck is going on? 
and in their grief to honor them. U.S. embassies and schools in the Portland area are now required to fly BLM flags in every classroom. Oh, and pride flags, too. Now, so when there aren't out-of-control people doing these kinds of things or beating up Jews, Asians, and others on the streets of America, and when police defunding isn't resulting in the killing of innocents, everything's fine. Fine, fine, totally fine. Let's go to Los Angeles now, where everyone's leaving, where the city council approved plans on Tuesday for spending $56.6 million less on police and more on the goal of investing programs that benefit communities of color and provide alternatives to traditional policing. Good luck with that. In the wake of the protests, calls to defund police agencies and to reimagine, remember that one? Oh, we're going to reimagine policing. Reimagine policing. We're going to reimagine that after George Floyd's death last year. And after that happened, $150 million was jacked from the cop budget. And now they've got another 56.6. And just FYI, some of that money is going to environmental projects. No, I'm not even making that up. Let's see. Oh, 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 and and a train in Los Angeles. <laughs> they're getting money because they're reimagining police, and so they get a new train. Yeah. Let's see. Oh, monitor, park monitors, and jobs programs, because everyone knows that a guy selling drugs or dealing in uh, illegal weapons wants to go to work at Arby's. You know that. Come on, man. And of course, this is another city in defunding mode, not defending cops, defunding police. And where's that getting them? Well, let's see. I go to uh, the latest stats for which we have a full year. So it's 2019 to 2020. So that included all the George Floyd riots, uh, most of them anyway, unless you're in Portland. And uh, last year, Los Angeles, a record total of 347 homicides is in the city. That's only 36% uh, jump oh, year over year. I mean, I don't know what you're looking at. 36% increase in deaths by other people's hands in the city of L.A., the city of angels? Well, I don't know what would be wrong with that. Oh, um, oh the chief of police said that escalating gang violence and other activity contributed to the rise. So thank goodness they're putting that new train in, huh? That'll do it. We've seen an increase in retaliation and disputes involving other persons, etc. Meantime, in L.A. County, an entirely different kettle of squid. In L.A. County, the homicide rate is only up 48% year over year. What are you looking at? You know, jobs program is going to totally totally stop the number of murders. It has nothing to do with no cops. Nope, nope, no. Oh, and meantime, George Gascon, he's the DA who lets everybody out of prison and jail. Yeah, he's still doing that. And there's a recall effort against him, as a matter of fact. I can't imagine. Well, that must be racist or something, right? $2 billion worth of damage since last May 25th. $2 billion with a B. And that is an underestimate. That's just what we thought initially after the first scourge, the first tranche 
of riots started throughout the country. Oddly, at the same time that uh, the Gresham schools are putting BLM flags in every classroom, it turns out that support for Black Lives Matter drops to a two-year low. I, I, I can't imagine. What? What? The collapse, I read here from Instapundit over at PJ Media, is um, the collapse started, you're not going to believe this, but the collapse started after all the riots. And people said, well, wait a minute, wasn't this a moment of grief? Wasn't this something to call attention to dysfunction? And Yeah, well, it was uh, until the riots started and the looting. Remember the looting in L.A.? That was something else. Yeah, I, I would loot in Beverly Hills. I mean, if I were someone who would loot, I mean, I totally would go to Beverly Hills or nearby on Melrose. Uh, you know, I, I would totally do that. When they're not beating up Jews sitting outside for lunch with their kaffia cloths on their heads, they have a BLM mask, etc. On uh, on other days of the week, and they uh, loot stores. You know, there is a cross-pollination of some of these groups, right? They, they're, they're all, they all hate America. I'm not overstating that. That's actually real. Let's see. I think Andy McCarthy wrote a whole book about that. Yeah, so uh, BLM support's gone down into the uh, the tank, the old crapper. I cannot imagine why support for BLM would be cratering at this point. Why? Oh, oh, oh I actually found out why. Um, turns out that people don't like riots. Isn't that something? Uh, the collapse in support began around the time when the BLM riots spread to 140 cities around the United States of America. And Joel Pollack, writing over at Breitbart, notes that while they tried to blame Donald Trump in this study, which showed cratering support of Black Lives Matter, the academics completely omitted the real reason for the massive decline in support. They did not seem to consider the effect of violence, rioting, murder and looting, except as reflected in Trump's rhetoric which, of course, started everything, you know, the Capitol riots, all that stuff. Of course, I'm, I'm speaking in jest. Let's see. Speaking of racism, I have some really, really bad news uh, to impart to you today. Um, I know. Well, it turns out that cycling, bicycling is racist. Yeah, that's right. We read this over at Instapundit. Uh, found out that the bicycling community is a bunch of mostly white guys, and that, of course, is fundamentally racist. It cannot be a compendium, an amalgam of individuals who've collected together to enjoy a sport. No, no, no. It is racist. And, reading reading here, anti-racist efforts within cycling must move beyond the trite euphemisms of inclusion, diversity, sensitivity, and allyship and begin to seriously consider the dimensions of power at play. Yes, control the cycling resources are important as are safe spaces to ride one's bike, but the power of whiteness within cycling remains unsullied. So if cycling and its stakeholders are to take anti-black racism seriously, it must frame its understanding of the world beyond the individual to proclaim that Black Lives Matter would also mean being attuned to the ways in which whiteness as a position of power continues to be normalized on and off the bike. Uh, what the hell was that? Let's go over to actor John Cena to get a translation. Over to you, John. 
，你好，中国，这是赵西啊。我必须说，现在，呃，在速度与激情中，呃，我做很多采访，很多很多很多，呃，所以在一个采访，呃，我有一个错误，呃，所有人问我，如果我可以用中文，呃。呃，初级剧情主任给我很多资讯 information， 呃，所以很多采访，很多 information， 呃，我呃，我有一个错误，我必须说现在就是很很很很很重要，我爱更尊重中国更中国人，我很很抱歉对呃我的错误，呃。对不起，对不起，我很抱歉。你必须了解，呃，我很爱、很尊重中国跟中国人。呃，不好意思，再见。Nope. No, wait, 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 wait. That is John Cena apologizing to China, taking a knee, as it were, because he dared say that Taiwan was its own. Country, shh. Of course, this will come as a huge shock to the company bosses that my of the company my husband used to work for. I mean, he would go over there, and you're not going to believe this. When he had a huge company meeting and that sort of thing, they'd go over to Taiwan, formerly known as Formosa, and that's right after they got the hell out of the Kami Land, the PRC. Okay, back to back to racist cycling. One more time, anti-racist efforts within cycling must move beyond the trite euphemisms of inclusion, diversity, sensitivity, and allyship, and begin to seriously consider the dimensions of power at play.、Uh, hey, John, can you、uh, translate that for us again? 你好，中国，这是赵西呢。我必须。We're interrupting John Cena and his groveling to the PRC. To let you know that we have a special edition of the Adult in the Room podcast today, and let's begin、um, with our new series, "Leaving California." I've lived a lot of life in California. I started my married life there, my career. I left and came back, and left and came back. Two of my three kids were born in California. I loved the predictability of the weather, Major League Baseball, going to the beach. Stunning sunsets, the cutting edge of the Christian faith community, my own church family, meaningful ministry, meaningful work, lifelong friends, and I understand, at the most basic level, why hundreds of thousands of people are leaving California.
53% of Californians are considering leaving the state, with the desire highest among millennials. I wanted to understand what the rest of the world was. I didn't want to be stuck in my tech bubble for the rest of my life. And that's also one of the reasons I came to Austin early. I think it's a reasonable question to say at what point does the state break? We're seeing that tested right now as we see the remote work environment. There's a lot to love about California. But I don't love the lawmakers who pass confiscatory tax rates because they think they know best how I should spend my own money. When it comes to tax structure for business, the Tax Foundation ranks California at the very bottom also, with only New Jersey ranked lower. What businesses are finding is that they're able to create much more value for their shareholders. They're able to generate higher profits. They're able to hire very high quality workers at lower salaries in other places. While tax rates increase based on how much you make, California's top marginal income tax rate of 13.3% is far higher than any other state. New York's, for example, is 8.8%. The conceit of lawmakers who believe they should have more of a say about where I live or how I drive, how I conduct my life. Turn off my lights at night and the air conditioner when it's hot because they promised someone at Davos they'd install more windmills, rolling brownouts, wildfires, out of control because California officials are unwilling to manage forests and the backcountry. Vanity projects like the billion-dollar budget-busting train to nowhere. They wrote, passed a bill, and got Gavin Newsom to sign a bill, killing thousands and thousands of freelance jobs. How dare they? And then, what did they do? Forgot to spend our money on the one thing Californians need the most. Pools, reservoirs, to store scarce water. They plundered the money and got so greedy they stopped listening to people who were just regular folks. Even the ballers wanted out. Wealthy, influential individuals leaving recently include Oracle's Larry Ellison, Dropbox CEO Drew Houston, Palantir co-founder Joe Lonsdale, high-profile investors and influential personalities like Keith Rubboy, Tim Ferriss, Ben Shapiro, Peter Atia, and Joe Rogan, who's leaving California for Texas. I just want to go somewhere in the center of the country, yeah. somewhere it's easier to travel to both places, and somewhere where you have a little bit more freedom. More freedom. Leaving California on the Adult in the Room podcast. Welcome to the Adult in the Room podcast, Terry Gilliam. And you have a special story that you'd like to share today about, well, as you put it, leaving California. Why? Oh, Victoria, it's, it's, a, it's a long story, but I'll, I'll, I'll make it brief. I moved to California in 1986. I moved out here as part of the restaurant industry and absolutely fell in love with California. Of course, the cost of living was higher than where I'd moved from in Texas, but loved living here, uh, enjoyed um, getting to know the, the mountains and the ocean and just the beauty of it. And if you fast forward 35 years, California is not the same state I moved to. It's not the same state politically. It's not the same state from the cost of living or a standard of living. 
So I started a Facebook group two and a half years ago called Leaving California because I had had it. I, I knew I wasn't the only person who was going crazy over the just the cost of living and the politics and the the fact that really what I believed is that and still believe is that we serve the government here. We serve the state government. They're, we're at their beck and call as far as they just always want more money from us. They always want to pass more laws to restrict our freedoms. And I just knew that I wasn't the only person. So fast forward today, I've got uh, I've got two groups that have combined have over 100,000 members, and we are helping thousands of Californians find a better place to live. Well, there are some people who would suggest that leaving California means that the good people with good square ideas in their heads and their heads on their shoulders are leaving a place that needs those kind of people. What do you say to those critics? I say my vote hasn't counted in this state for 30 years. I say that every time there's an election, whether it's a tax increase, and I'm not, I'm not opposed to tax increases. It's just that I'm, I'm, I am opposed to my taxes going into a black hole. But I say every time uh, uh, there's an election, my vote doesn't count because I am so outmanned, outwomaned, outpersoned, outvoted by the other side that I don't, I don't know when that's going to happen. I'm, I'm 62 years old next week, and am I going to wait another 30 years for that to change? Absolutely not. And I've got a family. I want to I want to raise them in an environment that I agree with. I want to send my son to a high school where he's not being indoctrinated. He's actually being taught how to think, not what to think. So I'm looking. Yes, I am looking after my own best interests, but I'm also going to go and move to a place in Florida where I'm going to become active in politics to make sure the same thing doesn't happen again. And that's a caution that I see on Leaving California, the Facebook group, a lot. Don't poison the places you're going to. Well, it, it absolutely. And, and we get, I, you know, I didn't start these groups as conservative groups, but they are. Uh, because those are the, those of us, I, I don't know, I don't know if you saw this, but I saw this happening or coming years ago where the state politics were, were going to drown out the middle class. We're going to eliminate the middle class. And I still believe that's going to happen in California. I believe that the wealthy, Yeah, the wealthy are going to be wealthier. The poor are still going to be poor, but the middle class can't afford to stay here. And as you know, anytime there's a tax increase, the middle class is the one who foots most of that bill. Sure, if you're wealthy and you know what's another hundred thousand dollars, that's great. And and by the way, I don't, uh, I don't, I don't begrudge people who are wealthy. I, I you know as long as it's done legitimately, I don't have a problem with that. And I think this whole idea of, of taxing the rich, well, in this state. Don't the wealthy pay about half of all state income taxes in this in this state? So the top one percent pay half of all the state income taxes. You keep raising taxes on them, eventually they're going to say they've had it and they're going to move. But to to answer your question, it absolutely is a concern. Uh, we do get people in the group who say, "Look, I'm going to go vote blue. I'm going to go vote for liberalism and what I'm leaving, but I just can't afford to stay here anymore." and um, you know, right or wrong, it's probably wrong, but they, they tend to get crucified in the group because it's like, hey, you voted for this. You need to stay here and, yeah. <laughs> and, and bear it. But That's people funny. are going to vote with their pocketbook and they're going to leave. Right. And, you know, it is a plan to input and embed companies and people all throughout the country in order to inoculate them against uh, being red-pilled. And 
I, I know that that's true because I remember Barack Obama talking about it. Go move to uh, this particular county and in Ohio, he said to one person, just move, go. And, and so it is. People in your group are moving to flee the rampant spending, overspending, indulgence of all kinds of vices and sins in order to go somewhere else. And leaving behind, if you will, people who voted in for, you know, in the the freebies and uh, now are stuck with what in, what they've wrought. But uh, there are others who have more nefarious intentions to change their new red area into a blue area. And it's by design in some cases. Absolutely. And and that that is a challenge. If if you look just this week, we've heard that uh, the federal government is flying in uh, illegal immigrants, uh, the children into Tennessee. And Tennessee is one of the redder states. It's, it's actually one of the more popular states that people are moving to from California mm-hmm. uh, because Idaho and Texas have gotten so expensive. And when they get expensive, their property taxes go up with it. Uh, Tennessee has much lower property taxes if you're in the county. Yeah, you only have county property taxes. You don't have city and county if you're in the county area. But uh, you see Tennessee, it, it seems like they're they're shipping a lot of illegal immigrants to Tennessee so that um, they, they uh, you know, they're uh, lower, well, lower income people. Typically, they're going to be on some kind of government program. Oh, sure. They and, already are. Yeah. And so people vote with their pocketbooks and they're not going to vote for conservatism, which is more of you need to you know, produce your own income and, and live on your own by your own means. And so that the hope is that uh, I believe is that they want to turn that state uh, to a bluer state. Yeah. Oh, that, of that, there is no doubt. I'm sure that's one of the reasons why a lot of the tech industry has chosen to move to Tennessee, Texas, in addition to it being better for their own bottom line. They also bring with them thousands of employees from the blue states who will then begin to inculcate their beliefs into the political water stream. And uh, it's kind of it's sad, but that's that's the way it works, I suppose. Now, tell me about your personal plans, then you're moving to Florida. I am. Uh, my, my wife of 26 years has uh, decided that uh, she wants to stay in California and for other reasons would, would like a divorce. So I'm getting divorced. And my 16 year old son said, Dad, I want to come with you. So I'm actually going to move back to Winter Park, Florida, which is where I was born and raised. Mm. And I've been gone for 37 years. And my parents are 90 and 86 years old. And my mom has severe dementia. So they still live on their own. So I'm actually going to move back in with my parents and care for them for their remaining years. And my son is going to attend a world-class private high school. Wow. Since I'm not going to have a mortgage anymore, I'll just, I'm going to send him to a world-class private high school that will give him an, an, an incredible education. And this year, the other part of it is this year in California, my son has been attending school online for two and a half hours a day most of the year, which is just ridiculous. Yep. You get no education. Uh, it, it's It's been pretty much a wasted year. This school that he's going to be attending has been, you know, 7.45 a.m. till 2.30, five days a week, uh, in person all year. And uh, again, it's a, it's a world-class school. It's got amazing teachers that will teach him uh, give him a great education. So it, it, uh, it, it's just going to change his life. 
obviously my life's changing, but I'm, I am absolutely looking forward to moving back to Florida. In fact, I've been following Ron DeSantis for quite a while, and man, I just love the way he's governing that state and uh, not letting the federal government push him over. And and by the way, my vote's going to count again because I'll actually be able to vote for people that can keep that state uh, conservative. And again, as I said, I'm going to join the Republican Party there. I'm going to make sure people understand that this is a fight. This isn't this isn't about compromise. This isn't about can't we all get along. This is a fight. And I wasn't in a position to do it 35 years ago when I moved to California because I, I had to work a full-time job. But now it's not going to be as important. So I'm going to do everything I can to make sure people understand that if you're not careful, things will change and this country will be lost because Texas and Florida and uh, Tennessee, if they turn blue, it's all over. And it's we over. know we're, we're in a lot of trouble if that happens. Yeah, well, we're already in a lot of trouble, and we haven't turned those blue yet. Just look what happened in the yeah. last election. Uh, now, have you ever been surprised by anything you've read on your own Facebook group leaving California? I've been pleasantly surprised by the thousands of people who have left and just talk about how much better their life is. And, of course, there's, there's always a challenge with change. As you know, Victoria, we have the best weather on the planet here in California. You know, when I'm, here I am in, uh, in the East Bay. Today the high is going to be in the mid-70s. Well, in, uh, with about uh, 20% humidity in, in central Florida, it's going to be probably 90 degrees with 90% humidity mm-hmm. and, and a chance of severe thunderstorms because that's what it is every day in the summer uh, yep. as you get towards the summer. But I am just I, – I, it just – makes my day every day when I see all of the wonderful stories about people whose lives have changed. They don't sit in traffic anymore. You know, they they own whatever, two, three, 20, a hundred acres in the middle of nowhere, but they've got a great school that their children go to. They've mm-hmm. got great hospital care. And guess what? The, the The government stays out of their lives. The government isn't always looking for new laws to pass, new restrictions, you know, they're they're not letting prisoners out of jail by the tens of thousands. They're putting their, their taxpayers first. And it's just a, a whole different way of life. And it's made me very envious some days. And I am just definitely looking forward to it uh, in June when I when I actually make the move to Florida and being able to just live a more normal life again. And that's the other thing I, I, I love is when people say I left California and moved to America. Yeah. Wow. So road trip for you and your son. Actually, I'm flying. Uh, I'm I'm (laughs) going to ship my stuff and and I'm going to fly. And uh, yeah, so I'll uh, I'll be there in in, I'm on a nonstop to Orlando on Southwest. So uh, I'm I'm uh, I'm going to fly there. I wonder how many other people will be with you in spirit on that flight. (laughs) <laughs> well, I'm going to do a FaceTime live at the airport just to let people know I'm getting on that plane. And it's it's going to be different after 35 years in in California. It's going to be very different. Of course, I've gone back to Florida many times to visit my family, but uh, it's going to be very different. When I get off that plane, I'll be a Florida resident. In fact, the next day I'm heading to DMV to get my license because I don't want to pay one dime of state income tax to California since I'm not going to be a resident here anymore. And of course, Florida has no state income tax. So 
Looking forward to that also. Amen. I know. (laughs) Tara Gilliam, thanks so much. Leaving California is the name of the Facebook group. Go check it out. Next time on Leaving California. He was burned out of his home twice. When he realized how much it would cost to rebuild in California, he loaded up his family and got the heck out of Dodge. The song, Leaving California, is by Sean Smith. And thank you to CNBC for laying it all out. We know you didn't want to do it. A personal note now before you hear from spy thriller author John D. Trudell. I knew John from having him on my radio program. He was an author and somewhat of a subject matter expert on tech security as well as the nefarious leaders of Iran and EMP bombs as well. So one day a few years ago, he gave me a call and he said, hey, do you think you'd want to produce my books for audiobook format? And without thinking, I said, sure, why not? I love audiobooks from when they used to call them books on tape to now. I had no idea what I was in for. I realized that this was probably going to be the first of many audiobooks, so I needed to set up an imprimatur, a company, within my own LLC to stand up an infrastructure for doing more of this. Doing radio, I thought, would be the only knowledge base I would need, and I was wrong. I mean, how do you make the books legal? Who will disseminate it? There were all kinds of questions I had to answer along the way. One book down, the second one done. Yes, Raven's Redemption. Then COVID. Then changes in the QA specs that took weeks or months between each tweaking to get it right. One editor, two editors, three editors. Oh, it, it was hard. <laughs> I had to fight for every inch of progress. What was taking so long? It couldn't all be COVID, right? Cancel culture was upon us in full force. I'd already had one publishing project of mine. It was another kind of uh, publication, but it fell through because of the politically incorrect nature of the subject matter. I'd been canceled. Was I having so much trouble getting this latest book, Raven's Redemption, published because of the inherent, politically incorrect subject matter, the salty language. I mean, what was the holdup? To make sure I had a place of refuge, if you will, for my author as well as my audiobooks, I began strategizing backup plans. What if Audible doesn't produce this or publish it? Who would carry the Raven's Redemption audiobook if Audible didn't do it? Where would I go? I came up with a couple of companies to go to just in case. Now, you might think, gee, that's kind of a long tail on that kite, Victoria. And yes, it is. It's even longer than that. But really, I won't bore you with those details. Um, That was actually the easier part of doing an audiobook, if you can believe that. People assume, like they do about talk radio, that all you have to do is open the microphone, start reading a book, and you're done. (laughs) Nope, not so fast. Reading an audiobook is not construction worker hard. It's not logger hard, but it is hard in its own way. You don't want too much of yourself 
in the book because audiobooks like radio are an intimate medium. So you can't over-emote. You can't act out the book as much as you think you might have to. Your voice must stay within the sound fidelity and, if you will, loudness parameters, volume, set forth by the self-described experts at the big publisher. Your audience, of course, must know who's speaking. So you must differentiate voices without sounding cartoonish. And as I've mentioned, I'm an avid listener of audiobooks. They've always been my jam, as I said. The gold standard for audiobooks is Jim Dale. He's an actor who did the American version of the Harry Potter series. But, you know, those books gave license to over-emote and, and act, sometimes in high dudgeon. Uh, and so Jim Dale was able to do a lot with those books. He was an incredible talent. I don't think anyone is going to touch him. But I couldn't do that necessarily with an audiobook that's talking about a badass, cold-blooded killer whose life is guns, knives, and bad guys. That was not going to work, probably. So I went back to study my favorite spy thriller books, and I paid very, very close attention to how the voice actors did their thing. I thought I'd picked up some ideas, but went back to really studying them. These are the people who were successful at the format. I'd better pay attention. I'd listen late at night when it was just me and Brad Thor's full black with Armin Schultz speaking into my ear as Scott Harvath or the old man. And these are my friends. And George Goodell as the voice of Mitch Rapp and Irene Kennedy in my favorite Vince Flynn novels. And parenthetically, that franchise has been taken over by Kyle Mills after Vince died, who is an astonishingly good author. Someday I'll talk about my family having dinner with Vince before he died. One reader that I especially like is uh, does Ben Coase's books. He's probably my favorite. For all intents and purposes, he is Dewey Andreas. He's got a franchise. Oof, that's a talent. Brad Thor gave me an girl and a blurb for my first audiobook, Raven's Run, and that was incredibly special. So nice. And I've learned. I'm a woman doing men's voices. Even if one of the main characters is a woman, it was a consideration. I know I get lost in the storytelling. Would my audience? Would men, let's be honest, the audience of these kinds of spy thriller books be okay with me doing Raven's Redemption? And I thought, well, I mean, I've been doing spoken word radio for a long, long time, and men are the biggest audience there, and they seem to like me, so what am I afraid of? Of course, I plunged right in. And then, on this last book, this latest one, Raven's Redemption, I finally got an answer after all this time. Finally, it was published. Now, I hope you go and download multiple copies of it over at Audible and Amazon. I mean, is it perfect? Is anything? But I really like it. And I'm my worst critic. And I know what I'm talking about. After my interview with John Trudell, we'll put in a couple of excerpts from the book so you can listen for yourself. And I will tell you what I told John D. Trudell, the author of the Raven series. I told him, you belong with those other spy thriller guys. You're as talented as they are. 
and you have a story to tell. And he tells them really, really well. I talked to John for a quick interview. We'll sit down for a longer one a little bit later on. But I thought it would be fun to get into the head of the guy who does these kinds of books. How does he know all that stuff? Enjoy it. John D. Trudell, the author of so many books, the latest of which is his Raven series, and the last one is, what is it called again, John? It's uh... It is called Broken Oath. It is book number four in the Raven series, and the subtitle is Death Run from Havana. <laughs> there you go. There you go. So Raven is quite a character, and in the spy thriller genre, it's... The way we like to see our characters, badass, good, uh, a good sense of humor, and a guy who knows all things about weapons and all kinds of um, dark, dark arts, shall we say. So how do you know all that stuff? Well, I've overlapped people who do that kind of stuff and at one time was even attached to that community uh, when I was a young engineer. Oh, it's a very long story, but I wound up in the back of, uh, as a civilian, <laughs> I never finished my doctorate, uh, but they were looking for people who were talented and would do crazy things. So I wound up in the back of, you know, uh, electronic intelligence airplanes and gunships and things like that. So I've actually known a lot of these people and still do. And God bless them. They have, uh, we live the kind of lives we do because of the people who go out there in the dark and uh, protect us. Mm -hmm. uh, probably the interesting thing, many people comment on the Raven series. My, my leads are uh, Raven and Josie, who are um, basically, she is all gentleness and light, and she's a paranormal who can actually see things into the future. And uh, Raven, of course, uh, goes into these dark places and deals with monsters. Uh, the problem being any kind of violence causes her to melt down. And that's what got the Raven series started back, way back in Raven's Run, uh, which has won awards. People like it. And I'm on book number four now, yeah. which is Broken Oath. Excellent. Now, how did you come across the idea to include a paranormal as part of your lead characters in these novels? That's interesting. Now, the interesting thing, if if you really do um, defense stuff, sensitive, sensitive defense things, everything is compartmentalized. And so you have to have, even if you have clearances, you have to have a need to know and you have to be read in on different things. And, you know, people make movies about that kind of stuff. Well, the other thing is people are people, and there's always rumors you hear. You'll go to meetings, <laughs> and people say interesting things. And um, the uh, I'll refer to something. If, if one goes to um, Amazon Prime, there's a movie up there called Third Eye Spies. Third Eye Spies, ah. I believe it's free on Amazon Prime. And what it talks about is paranormal viewing, which is also talked about in the first Raven book, Raven's Run. And uh, that stuff was real. And um, what 
they did. It was uh, very, uh, oh, way back when they had the Rhine Institute working on paranormal research and things like that. And uh, it's kind of woo-woo stuff. So if you got anywhere near Port, near Washington, D.C., they would ridicule you. Yeah, you're going to have witches and everything else. <laughs> but the interesting thing was the success rate was very, very low. But it was the only thing that would work for certain uh, conditions. If, if you had no other way to get the information, what else do you have? And there were just remarkable things that happened. And you would hear these rumors through the community. Uh, you'd be sitting at a bar and people would be telling stories and all that kind of stuff. And one, one story that was very um, interesting to me from the Cold War was uh, that was back the day, you know the hunt for red, red October oh, yeah. nuclear submarines all that kind of stuff and that was really dangerous that was probably the biggest threat we were facing back then um, you know the Doctor Strangelove days I call them um, so these paranormal viewers are off in their little compartmentalized things and they keep seeing things and one of them. Um, and I think this is even in that movie. There's a few books that touch on it. But the movie is interesting because some of the people who actually did these things are in the movie. Okay. Uh, but huh. so so they report to the intelligence community and they oh, well, we're seeing some things. And the Russians have developed a new ballistic missile submarine. They are developing it. And uh, it's going to be uh, pretty formidable. And that gets everybody's attention. Oh, wow. Okay. Well, tell us more. And they said, well, there's not uh, a whole lot to tell, but uh, sometime in the future, I think at the time it was like a year, year and a half in the future, it is being built in a facility, which is still under construction um, here, wherever it was. And there will be a canal built to take it from the facility into the Black Sea when they launch it. And that will happen on this date, you know, 18 months or 24 months in the future. Hmm. <laughs> okay. And of, and of course, everybody says bullshit. You know? right. <laughs> what, what are they going to say? Exactly. And so it gets talked around and th these people have seen other weird things. And uh, all right. So we go on that way. And finally, the intelligence community goes, well, what do we got to lose? So they task a couple of satellites to, to and by God, they waited and, and, and the canal actually was built going to the Black Sea wow. and it was empty. And there's a canal. That's kind of interesting. The date comes along and here comes this bodacious submarine. <laughs> uh, the, ca the canal is too shallow for it to submerge. So it's just floating down the, 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 the little canal to get to the Black Sea. And uh, they got two or three pictures of this thing, which had, you know, uh, nuclear missile launch tubes all over it and stuff like that. It was called the Typhoon class submarine. That was mm -hmm. the first time it was ever seen. And nobody saw it again for over a year. It just disappeared into the depths and they never, but they had these three pictures and there it was there, but my God, okay. Now years, years pass and I was not involved in that at all. Yeah, that's pretty woo woo. Uh, but um, you go on and people read my books and I'm going to meetings and so guy comes up and he tells me where he works and it's, you know, in, in the Pentagon and blah, blah, blah. He said, I read your book. <laughs> I said, really? well, thank you. Yeah. And he says, you know, the really weird thing is uh, 
for looking at underground sites and things like that, the, the odds of success are very, very low uh, of finding the stuff in the first place, but they're actually a little bit higher with paranormal research than they are with uh, satellites. <laughs> Okay. Jeez. <laughs> and I go, wow. oh, okay. So he bought me a drink. And I go, okay. Um, so that was how Josie came to be. And I got very interested in that kind of, you know, those kind of people. The Celts were big on that kind of stuff. So mm. she, in her previous life, was a Celtic princess and blah, blah, blah. Uh, but so that's the reality. What I have done is I've taken a creature of light who is very gentle and sensitive and can see things. And uh, because of the fact she can do that, she becomes a very valuable asset to the government. And eventually they assign someone to protect her who turns out to be Raven. And Raven is, she's all lightness and butterflies. He is very dark and sinister. So um, she, you know, and any kind of violence causes her to melt down. Uh, you'll see in some of the Raven's novels, she's actually traumatized and hospitalized. So she gets near violence. She can't handle it. Well, Raven is nothing but violence, but he has to stay around to protect her. And eventually they start doing things, and that spawned the Raven series, and I'm now on book number four. It's really great series, too, by the way. You're right up there, John, with all the big boys in this spice thriller genre. You are making your own way, and I really... Uh... I really enjoy them. I enjoy your novels. I'm not just a reader of your novels, but I'm also the audiobook producer for your novels. And it's so much fun reading them. It's a hell of a lot of work, though, I got to say. But it is just kind of fun, just real fun. You're right on both counts. A hell of a lot of work, more than anybody can imagine. <laughs> okay. And, but also a lot of fun. And, uh, you know, at the time I got into this novel stuff, I'd, I'd been working in high tech for years and I had a consulting business at the end and everything else. I'll retire and I'll write a novel because I'd written two nonfiction books and hundreds and hundreds of columns for magazines. I'll write a novel. How hard can that be? It took <laughs> me ten, 10 years. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, famous last words. How hard could it be? Well, you know, it's so funny because Keith and I, my husband and I, were listening to the book and because the audio book version just came out of Raven's Redemption at long, long last. And so um, I said, Kyle, you know, I've learned so much through this book, but for everything I've learned, John had to go back and learn it all and be able to distill it into some meaningful a bit of uh, prose so that it would come to life. And I, I just, that that's just so much work. I, I, I just, I stand and salute you for doing that. Well, the other thing that, that happens, it's people like you who inspire me to keep trudging along on this road. Yeah. And a lot of, a lot of people will tell me things and, um, and I listen to them and I never reveal my sources and things like that. So I get content and I get feedback about some of the opportunities and, um, uh, challenges that are out there, uh, the, the spooky thing about Broken Oath, and it's 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 got a shade of paranormal. Josie is there and everything. But this was all set. This is the hardest book I have ever researched because it is set along the invasion corridor uh, from Venezuela up until the up into the U.S. You know, well, uh, spot on. 
Spot on, yeah. And so it, the, the problem was I start doing the research and it is so dangerous that even people doing that kind of work um, can't get in and out, okay? And there's a few things, there's a few novels out that are set in that area, but they're usually before the embassy came down and before Venezuela became, you know, communist and things like that. After that, it's the most deadly place in the world. If, if you say, you know, a year or so ago, I'd say we're in the world or the most beheadings and area or country. And uh, most people would say the Middle East or something like that. Well, that's the wrong answer. It turns out it's uh, Mexico is all along the border. They put duffel bags full of severed heads in, you know, to intimidate each other. The cartels do you go, my God. And that's in the novel. And it's a story, but it really happens. Okay. Mm -hmm. And, um, the other thing, and so we talked about that a lot, you have this dynamic. Um, people don't realize, um, well, Venezuela, you go back 50 or 60 years, it was a very wealthy country. It was um, twice as rich as China, four times as rich as Japan, the fourth ranked world economy. The health system was the best in the Western world. And it's uh, money and economics was second only to the U.S. in this hemisphere. Very, very prosperous country. Uh, but it uh, became socialist and all that was destroyed in 10 years. All the comrades and just plundered the whole country. The comrades and their friends, different groups. And I didn't get it into the book because at the time I was writing it, it seemed so far-fetched. But what collapsed Venezuela was the Dominion voting systems that were developed there. And uh, they had they were a democracy and they woke up on uh, they were having an election in the middle of the election. The voting systems went down. And uh, the next morning when they woke up, uh, Maduro was the president. And now, of course, he's the dictator. And, um, you know, and it went downhill really fast, fast, fast. Except his uh, Hugo Chavez's daughter got out pretty well and with $4 billion in the bank. Oh, yeah. The amount of money. Uh, this, Venezuela was an extremely wealthy country. It had gold. It had oil. It had everything else. And, um, and a high standard of living. And so there it was. Do you think this is one of the best, I, you know, one of the best places in the world to live? Um well, the whole uh, dynamic has changed. And at the time I was starting, you know, okay, well, they're running all this stuff across the border. Well, it turns out to be more and more things with the cartels and with everybody in the world playing there. Uh, my friends who did this kind of work used to say or do this kind of work used to call Syria the chessboard because everything in the Middle East was flowing through Syria. All the problems of the world, the, the forced migrations up into Europe, that was kind of ground zero. And all the big all the big players were there. Russia was there, China was there, the US was there. Of course, Israel has to be there if they're gonna survive and on and on and on. So they used to call it the chessboard, probably still do, the, the people who think about this kind of stuff. And of course, what happened a few years ago, they said, well, they're building a new chessboard 
in this hemisphere. Oh. Well, we're, so what is it? Is it Syria? And uh, these guys are interesting. You know, I get Christmas cards, and I'll hear me somebody in civilian clothes walking across the border into Syria, and he says, Happy New Year. And I go, wow. Okay. <laughs> you know, what are you doing? Okay, whatever. Uh, so, uh, so anyway, they're building the chessboard in Syria, and everybody has wants to play a role. Um, you know, we, we had our Cuban Missile Crisis that everybody remembers. Well, <clears throat> the uh, Cubans almost bankrupted Russia. You take a couple of communist dictatorships and you put them together, and uh, not a lot good comes out of it. But the Russians <laughs> wanted a presence, so they kept funding Cuban, funding Cuban, funding Cuban, trying to get their money back by selling them kind of crummy washing machines and stuff like that. But they wound up billions and billions and billions of ruples, you know, that had just disappeared into Cuba. And so they'd like to get their money back. Well, so now they're playing in Venezuela. The Venezuelans had a problem in that as Maduro took over, the military and the police in Venezuela really didn't like you know, uh, assaulting and torturing and killing the civilians because uh, that, you know, that's their neighbors. So you have these Maduros, which are uh, basically uh, police and they're, they're paramilitaries from Cuba. And there's at the time I researched the book, I believe there are about 100,000 of them. But every every uh, Venezuelan military unit has a Cuban minder assigned to it. And so the Cubans are getting money from Venezuela to keep their keep the government in power down there. And of course, they're using that money to pay back the Russians all the billions <laughs> that they never paid back. Okay. So it gets it gets crazier and crazier and crazier. But it is by far um, the most dangerous place in the world. And so that's the book. And uh, that's what Raven is up against. And he has a small team of people. Uh, my biggest challenge in writing this one was, number one, getting close enough to do the research. Yeah. And number two, finding an environment where I could have a small team of people plausibly survive. And so this book took a long time to write. But that's, that's Broken Oath. And why is it a broken oath? Well, it turns out, believe it or not, I know, hard to believe, but there are people in Congress that are kind of working uh, to promote that. Can you imagine? Mm -hmm. uh, and so that's the broken oath bit. You can tell that John Trudell has a lot on his mind and several more novels in that brain of his that seems to just never turn off. And John, I just uh, want to let you know that I'm so grateful to be able to do your audiobooks, and I hope you enjoy this one. I don't know if you've heard Redemption yet, Raven's Redemption, and uh, if you have, uh, great. And if you haven't, just enjoy, sit back, and enjoy the ride of your own words come to life by somebody else who reads them, maybe not in the way you do in your head, but uh, the way that I do. And so. I am so honored. I can't say this strong enough to, to have somebody like you doing my audio books. Uh, 
coping with the challenges of writing or, or recording um, and producing this kind of material in the world we have today. I mean, you get hero badges and everything else, and your audiobooks have won incredible endorsements from some fantastic people. Uh, and also, you run into the same kind of resistance I do, where people are... Uh, mm shall we say, censoring or making life difficult. Yep. So I, I give you gold stars for that. And I am very honored to have you putting your time and effort into everybody wants audiobooks. Yeah, I mean, they, they basically they're commuting. Everything's locked down. They drive back and forth trying to get to work yep. and they can listen to these. And this is wonderful. Well, John, we'll visit again soon. And I appreciate you coming on the Adult in the Room podcast today. Oh, one thing before we leave, anybody oh. who cares, www.johntrudel, just J-O-H-N-T-R-U-D-E-L.com. That is my author's website. And I also have some discussions about the reality of all this. And that's just blog, B-L-O-G dot johntrudel.com, Trudel with one L. And uh, first chapters of all my books are up there as are samples of all of the audiobooks uh, in the Raven series. Uh, even the ones that haven't been produced yet have a little blurb up there so people can get a sneak peek of the books and of the audiobooks to come. Oh, excellent endorsement. Um, did I ask you about this Tom Clancy limit that I was uh, thinking about? Oh, yeah, that's, that's it coming up in interviews now. It's getting so strange. Tom Clancy, of course, is, is sort of, you know, a, a father figure of modern thrillers and super guy and a very good writer. Um, and he was asked and his books kept coming true. OK, they, they would happen and they would be very realistic and people would say, how does this guy know all this stuff? So that was Tom Clancy. And he was eventually when he became famous, they asked him in an interview I says, well, what is the difference between writing fiction and writing nonfiction? And he thought for a few minutes and he said, the difference is that nonfiction, excuse me, fiction has to make sense. Okay, fiction has to make sense. Um, and that's the difference between, you know, nonfiction. Uh, wow. Yeah. It doesn't make any sense. Now, the problem is I can't do that anymore. Because if my book overlaps reality and rea the reality that is coming into being, it doesn't make any sense anymore. Uh. <laughs> okay. So I call that in interview, I call that the Tom Clancy limit because you predict these things, but the yeah, novels have to be plausible. Reality doesn't have to be plausible, but oh, how do you have to, okay, this is real. It isn't plausible anymore. The stuff that's happening is is just crazy. So yeah. I th I'm working past the Tom Clancy limit. That's I believe it. There's lots going on. John Trudell's watching it. He's a novelist, and we appreciate your coming on the Adult in the Room podcast today. Thanks. Now, as promised, here are some excerpts from Raven's Redemption. This first one is Chapter One. Now, Raven is his legend, his current legend. He'd been booted out of the CIA previously. They had to sheep dip him and then put him into this setting in Raven's Redemption. And his control is Professor Goldfarb. And they had a clash 
right before this scene, and Raven has just won a several sparring sessions with his Muay Thai coach, which means to Professor Goldfarb's control that he's ready to go back and conduct another mission. He'd been on the DL, if you will. So here's part of it. Raven's instructor, Nye, had competed in Thailand and was damned good. At 22, he had been invited to the royal household to teach Muay Thai to the king's private security staff. Nye kicked like a mule and had the speed of a panther. Raven had never seen anyone with so much quick. Nye pulled his blows, but missing a block, redirection, or evasion was still bad news. Even with tie pads and focus mitts, the impacts hurt like hell. The brutal physical combat kept Raven's mind fully occupied. Each session ended with four intense five-minute rounds with short rest periods between. Raven was getting better. He was fighting to draws in the early rounds. And yeah, he even won one last week. But Nye kept the pressure on. He said the pros spar every day. The regimen kept Raven from thinking about Josie and how he'd let her down. It was also helping hone his senses. He welcomed the conflict. I take care of my people, Goldfarb said softly. If you can't trust me, we should not be working together. I'm sorry, Raven said. Goldfarb's eyes widened slightly. Excuse me? I said I was sorry. I apologize. The last time I saw you, you were in bad shape, right? Yeah, I was. You wanted to run off half-cocked to avenge the girl. Maybe. That was stupid. I need you to focus on the mission and to be able to perform. I need you to act like a professional. The agency called you cowboy. That shit doesn't cut it with me. Can we move on now? I don't work for the agency anymore. True, you work for me. And I need to know if you deem yourself to be mission capable. Are you up to another run? Here's an excerpt from Chapter 4, where Raven's getting a new tasking, but first he has to be sort of a representative, a guy who's going to get some sort of an award and he doesn't want it, but he has to go see the president. And it's all explained in the book, Raven's Redemption, but just suffice it to say, Goldfarb, his control, has a bead on Raven and knows exactly what he's trying to get at. Raven cleared his throat. Can I ask you a question? Goldfarb looked up. He sighed closed the red report binder and nodded. You are taking me to meet the president. I am. Are you sure you want to do that? The man wants a mission. I want the mission. Getting Josie back, trying to flip Safdari. That's the mission that I agreed to do. That's not why we are going to meet him. Those are details. Why then? infiltrating and subverting Iran to remove it as a threat is a major strategic offensive operation. It would take a prolonged commitment and sustained operational independence to pull it off. 
It is the sort of operation that an intelligence agency would need to work covertly for years. It would be well worth the effort and risk. America would need to act appropriately, decisively, in a timely manner, and with the proper resources and force levels on the intelligence provided. I wanted Safdari. Hugh wanted strategic. We worked it out. What's changed? My realization of massive opportunity. An interesting vision, but it seems to me you're drawing to an inside straight. Very low odds. Do you really expect we're going to walk in to see the president, me, a person he's never met, and he's going to okay something like what you've proposed? I'm coming to know you, Raven. Later on in the book, in this third excerpt, John Black, who's one of Raven's team members, gets in a huge scrape at an interesting location, a Black Liberation Theology Church. (laughs) And where it is will blow your mind. Like, really? However, Black, who's, he's got an an allergy. He's got an allergy. And the allergy is to -to hand-to-hand combat, taking out some bad guys. This is something he hasn't proven himself worthy of doing. Here's one particular scene in which it's the man meeting the moment. The big magnum had a long, heavy trigger pull and was impossible to hold steady. His arm tingled from the recoil. His ears were ringing, and he felt dizzy. There was no way he could rapid-fire effectively. It would have to be single shots, and the next one had to count. He was not going to get another chance. Black watched the AK swing toward him. The shooter popped in a new magazine. He went to one knee, to take up the two hands supported, and laid the gun on high center mass. At least it had tritium dots on sights. Thumbing the hammer back, he braced the revolver with both hands. With the front sight bold and sharp as death in the notch of the rear, he squeezed. Cocked, and the trigger pull was better, short and crisp. The hand cannon boomed like the end of the world. The shot went home, dead center. Black Sod hit. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Adult in the Room podcast. To keep the programs you like to listen to, please rate this podcast with a fantastic five stars on your Apple Podcast app every time you listen. And give me a great review. Plus, of course, subscribe to the podcast. It makes a difference with the big tech algorithm and the big tech oligarchs. And it makes us easier to find. Please get in touch with me on all the big tech stuff. Yeah, we're still there. Using the names Victoria Taft or the Adult in the Room podcast on MeWe, Parlor, Minds, Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Thanks to 1A Cast for imaging, editing, and production. The fantastic song is Gospel by the March 4th Band of Portland, Oregon. Music for Antifa versus Mike Strickland is Ride or Die by Raps by RC. The Adult in the Room podcast is also a production of Flamingo Road Studios. Remember, head up, heart out, and strive to be the adult in the room. Till next time, mischief managed.